0: today you have about 30 shopping days left until Christmas I'm sure that's information you really want to know or care about Uh, those in school have 10 to 15 days of school until Christmas break Uh, that's very exciting if you're a student probably uh, more cookies and fudges and uh, pies to be baked parties to attend plans to be made Schedules to be coordinated with people that you love and care about and uh, you probably want to think about this morning If your tree is not already up, what are you doing here? <laughs> you should leave right now and go take care of something so important. I remember uh, Years ago when our, our big girls were little, uh, we started putting the Christmas tree up the week of Thanksgiving and they um, Were asking me, does this mean it's Christmas time? I was like, well, you know, Christmas is still a month away Well, then why don't we wait until then to put it up? I was like, yes, that's a great idea Of course, now they're older and they want to put it up the night of Halloween and go ahead and (laughs) get the party going. But it's a a wonderful season of activity, sights, smells, fun things to do, and it's also crazy hectic. Like our lives are already busy and now we just add all of this stuff to our already busy lives. And this is where the church steps in, as we always do, Uh, not just our church, but all churches really, and, and emphasize and help us to focus and desire people to focus on what are we really celebrating? You know, we don't want to celebrate the commercialism, materialism, just the food or the fun. We want to let all of that be celebration of Jesus. And celebrate why He came. And celebrate what that means for us as Christians. Our goal through the Advent season is to help us during this time to stop and worship. Just to push pause on the busyness. You can just turn off your mind, at least from all the distractions or all the schedules and plans. Turn on your minds to theology and and truth and who Christ is, but just just breathe for a little while. You don't have to run and do anything right now. Just just enjoy Jesus together with your family uh, called the Crossing Church. Our hope and prayer is that the Spirit would also help us bring that focus and that love and that adoration of Jesus that we're experiencing here right now into the busyness into the hustle and bustle of everyday life. Like I was noticing this morning as we were putting the signs out, we have a sign that says, Come worship with us. And there's an arrow pointing inside to the Crossing Church. And it would be equally as accurate as we're leaving to take that sign and flip it around. Now come worship with us outside of this building. Because that's just a continuation of worship. It just looks different. And that's what we hope and desire. And as we spend this time together on Sunday mornings during this season... We're going to uh, uh, walk through a sermon series that is uh, built upon some of these Christmas hymns that we love to sing. Uh, we're going to take a different hymn every Sunday, and we're going to talk about the theology that's drawn from the Scriptures that, 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 that caused the hymn writer to write that hymn. Talk about some of the background, if it's relevant, or if we know the background of the hymn, and then, and then we're going to sing it. And hopefully it'll be filled up with more meaning and more uh, intentionality than ever before for you, as we do that. We emphasize from the beginning of the crossing that the words of songs we sing are more important in us, to us than the style of the song or even the popularity of the song. Uh, we don't want just to sing empty, fluffy songs like the Hallmark Songs of Christmas or the Hallmark Songs of Life. Um, not hating on Hallmark. It has its place, but sometimes it's a little fluffy, like their' Christmas movies. <laughs> um, if you love those, good for you. I'm glad you love those. Uh, nor do we want songs to have obviously misleading theology or, or false theology. Thankfully the church has a rich history of music that goes all the way back to the book of Psalms <laughs> and the actual songbook in the scriptures that the Lord has given us to guide the church about what good songs should be. And even today there's good solid music that's being written that has good rich theology. Another danger that we can fall into uh, with anything, but especially songs, is that we, um, we sing songs so much, they become rote a routine, so that we're just hitting notes and saying words, and it's not really impacting the mind or the heart. We're just kind of doing it because we've always done it, and we want to guard against that, and, and hopefully this series will, will help us by digging deep into these songs that we're singing, to sing them with more intentionality. There's always a danger of going through the motions, and not allowing our hearts and minds to be engaged. And our prayer is that that doesn't happen ever. But especially during this time. So next Sunday we'll walk through O Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Then God Rest you, Mary Gentlemen the following Sunday. Then uh, one of the songs we just sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And then uh, we'll finish with O Holy Night, the Sunday before Christmas. But today we are encouraged to go to Bethlehem and worship our King with the song O Come All Ye Faithful. If you look in your typical hymn book, hymn books are these uh, books that are in a lot of churches that have songs in them. Um, There's actually only three verses listed, but the original song had four, and we're going to sing all four. So the words go like this, O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem, come and behold him, born King of angels, true God from true God. This is the verse that's usually left left out light from light eternal born of a virgin a mortal he comes very god begotten not created Amen. Sing choirs of angels sing in exaltation sing, all ye citizens of heaven above glory to god all glory in the highest and the last verse yea lord we greet thee born this happy morning jesus to thee be all glory given word of the Father now in flesh appearing. And then the chorus we know well, Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Father, we thank you that through the, the history of the church, you've risen up men and women to write songs that help us sing of the goodness and the glory and the truth and reality of who you are. Sometimes saying words isn't enough. Our souls are so filled with adoration, we have to burst forth in song, and you have helped us do that well. So we dig deep into this one. Help us to see the truth from Scripture and help us to live it out throughout this season. Bless our time together, and I pray that the Spirit would provide in every heart and mind that's here exactly what that person needs. For the glory of Christ alone we pray. Amen. Now this hymn, written by John Francis Wade in the 1700s in England, was originally written in Latin. Uh, We're not going to sing that version. Wade wrote numerous Latin chants and hymns for the Catholic Church. Wade was also a sympathizer of a rebellious group wanting to overthrow the English throne, known as the Jacobites. Some think Wade may have been sending secret messages in these hymns, and this hymn was a call for the faithful to meet together on the eve of a rebellion in 1745. Now that's debatable, but that's just speculation. Some even suggest that kings had this song written as uh, bridal songs for their daughter's marriage. O come, all ye faithful citizens of the kingdom, and adore my daughter being married to this young man. And Again, that's debatable. Even if the song had a dubious origin, God has taken it and redeemed it, as only God can and does, so that it is universally sung about King Jesus now. This is the only time you really hear this song sung. And it's a rallying cry for the faithful to come. Come and do what? Come and adore Him. What does it mean to adore someone? Webster says that to adore is to worship as divine and to love and honor with intense devotion. For the Christ follower, this describes our affection for Jesus. We love, we adore, we honor Him with intense devotion. Way more intense than what we watch on a football field or through a screen on a football field. Way more intense than that. This is life-sacrificing, life-giving intensity. That's reserved for Jesus alone. This is how we feel about our king. This is how we feel about this baby that was lying in the manger. This is how we feel about the celebration behind all the fun stuff of the Christmas season, the Advent season we get to do. The angels came and worshipped in Luke 2.13. They appeared before the shepherds singing, Glory to God in the highest, which is portrayed in the hymn. The, The fourth verse begins with, Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning, conjuring up images of those... Poor shepherds traveling through the night to find the baby lying in a manger. The Lord they had come to adore, the angels had sung about. The babe Jesus described in so many wonderful terms in this hymn. King of angels, God of God, light of light, very God begotten, not created. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Christ the Lord. Incredible images of who the angels came to sing of, of who the shepherds came to worship, and of who we are invited to Adore, to love and honor with intense devotion. He is the king of angels, Hebrews 1.4 tells us. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hebrews 1.6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all of God's angels worship him. Angels only worship God. And they were worshiping a baby lying in a manger. In verse 2, Wade calls him the God of God, light of light, very begotten, not created. The verse left out of most hymnals taken right out of the Nicene Creed. A a creed was an early church development, a statement of faith, you might say, that would help the church solidify what they believed was true about God and help fight and combat against errors that were being spread throughout the church. In fact, often creeds came out of councils and councils were called for the church to meet, to respond to false theology that was beginning to be spread and infiltrate and influence the church. And that's what happened with the Nicene Creed in 325. And one part of the Nicene Creed says, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, but God not made, of one being with the Father, through Him all things were made. Talking about Jesus. And they were... Uh, responding to the false teachings from a group known known as the Arians who said that Jesus was not fully God. He was just a really good man. You see that teaching carried on today by groups like Jehovah's Witness. In the doctrine and theology of a church, there are secondary and even third-level issues that we can agree to disagree on and we don't have to have agreement on and still be one church, still be a family of faith. And then there are these top-shelf issues that there has to be agreement. Issues for which we would give our lives for. Because if you water these issues down, if you lose these issues, you lose Christianity as you know it. And the, the character and nature, the person of Jesus, is one of those top-shelf issues. Like This has to be defended. This has to be declared. This has to be uh, completely understood as much as humanly possible with the Spirit's help. Or we will lose Christianity itself. The person and nature of Jesus as truly God, truly man, God in the flesh. It's essential we know and understand that Jesus was and is God, that this baby in a manger wasn't just a baby. It was truly a baby, but it was also God in the flesh. And you say, well, of course we know that. Hello, we know Jesus is God. We've got that. Let's move on. I remember a seminary professor uh, telling us a story in class one day about a a uh, gospel opportunity he had at a gas station when he began to share the gospel with the clerk and he mentioned that Jesus was God. And she began to ask him what cult he was a part of because she had been in the Southern Baptist Church for 30 years and she had never heard that. And it was blowing her mind that Jesus could be God. So let's not take it for granted. Let's understand and embrace and enjoy this. Jesus was, is, and will always be God. This is not a fairy tale just because it happened 2,000 years ago in a faraway land. People walked with Jesus, talked to him, ate with him, laughed with him, and the whole time they were looking at literally God in the flesh, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who knit them together in their mother's womb. Does that boggle your mind a little bit? We're talking to each other. We don't don't look at each other and say, well, this, this guy could be God. He's so good and holy We don't even come close to thinking that about each other. But that's exactly who Jesus was, Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh. All they saw was what we see in each other. But they could see his divine nature through the eyes of faith, which also happens to be the only way we can see that Jesus was God, through the eyes of faith here 2,000 years later. We come to the babe in the manger and we adore him because that is the most unique baby ever born to God, God dwelling inside of a baby. No wonder the angels sang glory to God in the highest. No wonder the shepherds came before the infant and would say, yea, Lord, we greet thee. We celebrate with great joy the birth of our kids and our babies and our grandbabies, but that is nothing compared to God coming into our world, dwelling with us, walking with us, living with us, and then dying for us. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have not come. He could have let us suffer the punishment we deserve, but He came. That's what Advent means, coming. The hymn and the creed say He is begotten, very God-begotten. And the last verse, He's called Word of the Father. So let's dig a little bit deeper into those in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 14. He is the only begotten of God. It says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Begotten, your Bibles may say, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known, the only God, begotten of God. We know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.18, two verses later, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of The only begotten Son of God, the only Son of God. Now You see several ways that translations uh, will translate that Greek word into English. The ESV says the only Son of God, which is good. The NAS will say the only begotten Son of God. The NIV, the CSB, translates that as the one and only, which is a good translation as well. It's a very interesting Greek word for begotten, monogonase, the Greek word behind the English word begotten. It's derived from two words, mono, which we know from Latin means one, And genomai, which means become. Now, there is a word in the Greek which describes fathering a child. You will see that translated in the King James. Don't go into convulsions because I mentioned the King James. You see it translated in the King James as begat. If you've ever read the King James, you'll see that sometimes in the listing of of histories of people so and so begat so and so, so and so begat so and so. When I was a kid, that was such a weird word. But that means you're fathering a child. That's not the word used here to speak of Jesus as begotten. Jesus being the only begotten is not like God the Father had a son, as we understand that kind of relationship. Begotten has three meanings in the original language of the New Testament. First, he's the only only one born with no brothers and sisters. Now, we know Jesus had half-brothers, half-sisters, but he was the only one born of God, straight from God, the virgin birth. Second, it means he is the only one of his kind, unique, no one like him. And lastly, it means he is the same nature as the father, identical in nature. And so the baby born in Bethlehem was the son of God, only begotten of God, of the same unique nature of God, not less than God, but equal with God, above everything and everyone else. The begotten son of God. The hymn also says he was not created. Now we think of a baby being born, we know how science in biology works, nine months after conception, a baby is born into the world. But the life of Jesus Christ never began. It always was. There was a moment in time which the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived. And so this earthly figure we know is Jesus of Nazareth began to be formed in her womb. And from then on, biologically, Jesus formed and developed like every other human being has ever formed and developed. But the Son of God, the divine nature of Jesus, was never created. It always existed. Colossians 1:15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Speaking of Jesus. Go ahead, which takes us back to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, was not anything made that was made. He is the Word. He was with God and was God in the beginning. John starts with this declaration. In the beginning was the Word. Now, in the original language of the New Testament, there's no article. So in the original language, it doesn't say, in the beginning. It just literally reads, in beginning. So what beginning? What's John talking about? What beginning is he referring to? Well, the minds of the readers and our minds should go immediately back to the beginning. Back to Genesis chapter 1, where Moses doesn't defend but declares, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John declares the same, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was not just there in John chapter 1, wasn't just there in Bethlehem, it was there in the beginning, the very beginning, present to create. His existence didn't begin in Bethlehem, it's timeless, it's always been. Well, why would John call Jesus the Word? What is he talking about? Now, John's the only writer to call Jesus the Word. He never gives us an explanation of why he refers to Jesus in that, with that word, word. So why did he use that word? Lagos. Let's just call it that, Lagos. Well, who were his readers? Why did he feel like he didn't need to explain this to his readers? Well, his readers were Jews and Greeks. What would word Lagos mean to the Jewish audience in those days? Well, we know from... The the Old Testament, the Word of God, in Genesis 1, was the agent through whom God created. How did God make everything? God said, let there be light. God said, let there be firmament. God said, let there be sky. God said, let there be sun and moon and stars. Let there be land animals and sea animals and birds that fly in the air. God said, let us create man in our image, and he created. In the Jewish mind, God spoke and things were created. Hebrews 11.3 speaks of this. By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made not out of things that are visible. Ex nilo. He created everything out of nothing, from nothing. The word to them was God, to the Jews, was God showing his power, his will, and his mind to them. Now, Now think of this. They believe that God's word, and you said logos to a Jewish mind, oh, that's God's will and his mind, and his power. Now John is saying the Logos has become flesh, a person. Now you can see him encapsulated in a human being. It's mind-blowing for them to hear this. Are you serious? This word that called all things into creation in Genesis 1 is now a person I'm eating supper with, I'm walking around with, now, to the Greek, the word logos was the power and energy in the universe that gives order to the universe. They believed the logos was impersonal, yet divine power. And here comes John saying to the Greeks, the logos is not impersonal. He has a name. It's Jesus. And he knows you, and he loves you, and he's dying for you. To both the Jews and the Greeks, the point he was making was that God is speaking to them through the logos, the word, and that word is this man Jesus. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And John says next, the word was with God in John chapter 1. With is a Greek preposition that means towards, facing towards, or face to face. It's this picture of, of intimacy Jesus the son was face to face intimate with the father I remember when uh, Abigail was really small he used to um, spend time with them before they go to bed read read the Bible and read stories and pray with them have fun with them and then we'd lay with them for a little while while they were falling asleep just loving kids being little and one night I was laying next to her and and I got uncomfortable so I turned my I turned over turned my back to her she's like dad can you turn back over? I was like, ah, I'm uncomfortable. You're fine. Go to sleep. Hush. Blah, blah, blah. She's like, uh, I, know, I know, but I want your face toward me. I was like, oh, well, I gotta turn over now. I mean, your two-year-old daughter wants your face towards her. She, she was not satisfied with me just laying in the bed next to her. She wanted my face toward her to be as close as possible to her. And that's the kind of intimacy that the son had with the father as close as possible until that one day when for the first time in all of eternal history the father turned his back on the son my god my god why are you forsaking me because he was bearing the weight of our sins for the first time in the history of being god there was a lack of intimacy between between the father and the son Because he was pouring his wrath out on the Son because of our sins. But that was a relationship they had from the very beginning. Read through passages like John 5 and see the intimate relationship between Jesus and his Father. I'm doing whatever my Father is doing. I'm always about the work of my Father. Total unity, total harmony, total oneness with each other, yet distinct. Then... John states in in chapter 1, verse 1, the Word was God. Jesus was and is God. He's not the Father, but He is God. Now, what does that mean for you and me? Well, if we establish that Jesus was God and the babe in the manger was the creator of all things, then we have to come to grips with two things. Number one, Christianity is tied to a person. Therefore, salvation and eternal life come through that person. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12, There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven, under men, given among men by which we must be saved. This is unique from all other religions. No other religious leader claims this for themself. No other religion has followers who claim this about their religious leaders. Only Jesus says this about himself. And only Jesus has followers who claim this about themselves. Secondly, we come to grips with if Jesus is God, then our entire life is Consumed with that reality. Being a Christian means you're a follower of Christ. You can't be a Christian by following a bunch of rules, by practicing a bunch of religious traditions or, or, or religious practices, and not having anything to do with Jesus. Christianity is Jesus. It's Him. You you can't divorce those two things. Well, I'm okay with this lifestyle that seems to live to Give me a better life, and I have all these great relationships with people who seem to love me, and we enjoy hanging out together. We have a lot of things in common. Things that seem to be going well for me in life if I stay with this group of people called Christians. It's a better way to live, it's a better way to raise my kids. But you're not consumed with Jesus, you're not adoring Jesus, loving Him, honoring Him with intense devotion. You can't divorce those two things, they go hand in hand. This is Christianity. God dwelling in us, the supreme authority in the universe. That's going to show up in our life. That's going to motivate and drive every single aspect of our lives. How could it not? How can God move into a person and not take over? He's God. He has to take over. Or else he's not moved into that person. Our culture needs more and more people who not only claim to know Jesus but who are experiencing the fullness of Jesus in all of life, who celebrate something like Christmas or Advent like crazy. Like we, don't, we don't have a problem putting lights on our house and, and putting trees up and eating a bunch of food and going to a bunch of parties. We want to celebrate. And we want to celebrate for the greatest reason you can possibly celebrate. We want to throw the biggest parties for the biggest reason to throw a party that there exists in all the history of the universe. John wrote this chapter... This entire book, for one reason, stated in John chapter 20, verse 31. These things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Life through Christ, God in the flesh. This is what we have to offer the world that is unique from anything else that you can get in the world. To the dying, to the blind, to the lost, to the hurt, to the sick, to the sore, to the lame to those seeking and searching for life, hope, joy, and peace, we've met him. We've met him, the redeemer, the savior, the king, the healer, the friend, the shepherd, the hope of all hopes, the joy of all joys, the love of all loves. I came across an interesting discussion this past week on social media. Apparently there's interesting discussions on social media, and I found one. The top 10 list of Christian bestsellers for the month of November was released, and there were a bunch of authors and Christian personalities discussing, you know, this list that had a, a lot of books that we might say didn't have the strongest theology behind them—a uh, lot of uh, fluffy-type Christian books, but books that were related to everyday life, so finances or health or, or like uh, your, how healthy your body is or wanting to hear the voice of God and these sorts of things, or how do you interpret the end times? Or maybe it was a a Christian celebrity who had written a book, and so because of their last name, everybody's buying this book. And there's this debate going back and forth, because some people were saying, we want to write better books, and we do write better books, but they don't sell. And Christian publishers were saying, "Uh, we need to sell books or we can't exist. So how do we live out this tension? And one author in this thread made this point. Uh, she said i found after all these years of ministry that it's not going to change soon so that at the end of all of our heady events people still walk through their cars wondering how on earth to make it through another day in their home marriage pain mental illness addiction or job many people cannot pay their bills which is why they need to hear more about being successfully financially many can hardly bear their own family members which is why they want not help with relationships and people need someone to blame which is why they like books that shame others People are barely making it and we want them to read systematic theology books. They are desperate for help to connect the dots of the gospel to their, actually, their actual lives and it does not connect. And this is who we've come to adore. This is who we've come to worship. The God who connects the dots. God who didn't stay distant, far away in heaven, but came to earth to give his life so that we could have his life and see how this big God makes a difference in the smallest things. This is how we live life as the people of God, as the community of people focused on Jesus, connecting this big gospel to the everyday stuff of life. And as we live it out, we are showing people and sharing with people and helping people see how he makes a difference in finances, how he makes a difference in how you take care of your body, how he makes a difference in your parenting and your marriage and your job and your stresses and your struggles. Because he does connect all the dots. He does have the answers. He is the source of all wisdom by which we will apply all of this to everything. And we have this opportunity to worship him. This is who we come to adore. This is who we've come to worship. This is who we come and sing glory to God in the highest, the God who came into our mess and did everything to take us from down here to up there. And as we live empowered by Him, up there actually comes down here every time the kingdom of God shows up, every time we love selflessly, every time we give sacrificially, every time we serve For the name and the glory of Jesus, the kingdom is showing up. So what is this babe in the manger to you? Do you have his life in you? Are you enjoying him to the fullest? Is his life and joy flowing through you into all areas of your life? And is his hope overflowing from you to others? He is the king of angels, the God of God, the light of light, very begotten, not created. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, Christ the Lord. And so can you come? Can you come, my faithful friends? Can you come now and adore Him, to worship Him as divine, as God, to love and honor Him with intense devotion? Can you come and adore Him? Oh, come, let us adore him oh come let us adore him oh come let us adore him christ the lord father we are so thankful that you have invited us that you have come to invite us in to behold the glory, the mystery, the mightiness of this man, Jesus. And he has come into our lives and is changing everything. And I thank you that that is the reality for so many people in this room. And we long for it to be the reality of everyone in this room, our kids, our grandkids. We long for it to be the reality of everyone in our city and beyond. And so as we adore you, worship and honor you with intense devotion. We want to live lives that share that and show that with others. But we need your help. So come and help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.